The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture for today's sermon is uh, Judges 10:6 through 12:7. Thankfully, I only have to read the very end of the passage, which is uh, chapters 12, verses 1 through 7. The men to Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon, where they said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you Ephraimite? When he said, no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in his city in Gilead. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, I ask that even through the dark and difficult parts of your word, you would open up by your spirit truth that we need to see and shine into our lives the bright light of your gospel. May the darkness only help us to see even more the gospel's brightness. I pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. If you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 11 is where we'll get started. So Judges chapter 11. And this is for part two. If you weren't here last week, it was part one. So we're into part two of the tragic story of major judge number five, Jephthah. And the text that Corey just read for us is actually, like he said, it's the very end of the story. It's the same text that I had read to us last week because I want us to begin with the end of this story because the end of the story, it's, it's kind of like a bonus scene after the main action and this bonus scene, we start with it because it, it seems to summarize everything that's happening throughout Jephthah's story. If you weren't with us last week, here's what I, what I mean by that. In that bonus scene we just saw, Jephthah, his soldiers, they had a dispute with the Ephraimites, and they defeated the Ephraimites, and there were some fugitives still kind of running around, and they wanted to stop them all, so they get the fords of the Jordan. Every time an Ephraimite fugitive's trying to go over the fords of the Jordan, they're like, yo, you an Ephraimite? And he's like, no, I'm not. And they use a clever linguistic test to see if he's telling the truth. They try to get him to say shibboleth because Ephraimites could not pronounce that word correctly. It would, it would give them away, which is why if you look up the word shibboleth in your dictionary, which we all still own, 
Uh, no, just go to dictionary.com. If you look up the word shibboleth, we use it today to mean a, uh, a distinguishing mark. Something that, that shows a people group or an organization or something that you belong to. It's like a dead giveaway. Like, for instance, if I tried to claim to be a member of the Clean Shaven Club, there is a dead giveaway a shibboleth, as it were, on my face that says I don't belong. That's what's happening with the Ephraimites whenever they try to say shibboleth. They cannot hide the people to whom they truly belong. They cannot hide the culture they've been shaped by. Last week, we saw that that is what makes this scene the perfect conclusion to Jephthah's story. Because it summarizes what God is doing throughout the whole thing. Namely, God is looking at his people and saying, say Shibboleth. In, in other words, Israel, you claim to be my people. You claim to be the people of God. God says, say Shibboleth. Let the realities of your life reveal the people to whom you really belong. Let them reveal the culture you've been shaped by. Israel, you claim to be my people. Have you been shaped by the culture of my kingdom? Or have you been shaped by the, the culture of the Canaanites, the kingdom that surrounds you? To which kingdom do you truly belong? And this passage asks the exact same thing of us. Like We can claim to belong to the kingdom of God, to be a part of the people of God. But what do the realities of our lives reveal about the kingdom to which we truly belong, the culture which we've been shaped by. I told you last week that there are four realities in this story, four realities that serve as like a mirror. They help us to see ourselves and see if we do indeed belong to the kingdom of Christ or if we belong to the kingdoms of this world, if we've been canonized, as it were, shaped by the cultures that surround us. Four realities that help us to see this. Last week, we covered the first two, just so you remember. Reality number one, as people are canonized, they canonize their view of God. As people are canonized, influenced by the culture around them, if the culture's shaping them, then that begins to shape how they see God instead of what should be happening the other way around. We should be seeing God as he has revealed himself to be in his word, and that should be shaping us. That was reality number one. Reality number two, canonized people choose canonized leaders. That flows quite naturally from the first point. If we have a canonized view of God, of our ultimate leader and ultimate authority, then we're going to choose earthly leaders and earthly authorities that, that reflect that. Canaanized people choose canonized leaders. This is what we saw Israel do last week, was it not? Right at the beginning of Judges chapter 11, Israel's facing this threat from the Ammonites. The Ammonites are threatening to invade in the land of Gilead, which is in kind of northwestern, no, excuse me, northeastern Israel. And they're like, we need a leader to defeat the Ammonites. And who do they choose? Right at the beginning of chapter 11, they choose Jephthah. And we saw last week, Jephthah displays the qualities, the character of a typical Canaanite leader. A typical Canaanite conqueror. Canaanized people choose Canaanized leaders. And today, 
as we zoom in on Jephthah, we will see very clearly reality number three. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Reality number three, Canaanized people embrace Canaanite means. Canaanized people embrace Canaanite means. In in, in other words, what what I mean is that uh, in order to have success in life, in, in order to achieve our goals, whatever those are, or in order to, to get what we need, what means will we embrace to achieve those things? Canaanized people, people who've been shaped by the culture around them, choose the same means as the culture that's around them. Canaanized people choose Canaanite means. We've already begun to see that through the reality that Israel chose Jephthah. They're under threat from the Ammonites. What means will they choose for military victory? What kind of leader? Not the kind that God has raised up them for them before throughout the book of Judges. God, God raised up for them leaders that to us looked weak so that it would be clear that when they conquered, it was by his strength. But that's not what the people go for. They've been Canaanized, so they choose a Canaanite leader. Canaanite means a strong man. No matter how much of a brute thug and self-interested he is. Jephthah is the kind of leader the Canaanites would choose to ensure victory. And he's the one that Israel themselves embrace because Canaanized people embrace Canaanite means. We see this even more clearly. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, Israel's choice of Jephthah. We, we, We see this even more clearly with more detail through Jephthah's actions. Through Jephthah himself. Look at, look at Judges chapter 11. We're going to start out in verse 12. Verse 12. So they've chosen Jephthah to win this battle for them. This is what Jephthah does. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites. And he said, what do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, those are two little tributaries, two little rivers that serve as boundaries, and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So if you read straight through this chapter, first of all, you're going to get bored pretty quickly. Because what you'll notice is that the rest of this chapter, most of it is just an extended speech from Jephthah. Jephthah begins by sending word to the Ammonite leader, yo, why are you invading in the first place? And he's like, well, because you know, a couple hundred years ago when y'all came up from Egypt and started taking over places, you took over this patch of land which belonged to my people in the first place. He's lying. It did not. It belonged to the Amorites. Yes, the king of the Ammonites claiming that the land of the Amorites, I know, I didn't, I didn't choose the names, people. I didn't choose them. I know they're confusing, but that's what's going on. And so Jephthah's going to respond to this accusation with some pretty tight arguments. Verses 15 to 27 is going to be nothing but Jephthah blabbering on about history and theology and chronology. And this is unique. We've never encountered anything like this before in the book of Judges. None of our other judges have gone into like a a soliloquy. 
If you read through this, you might find yourself asking, why? Why is our author devoting so much space to what Jephthah has to say? Especially when it's all going to turn out to have no effect whatsoever. Look all the way down to verse 28. Verse 28. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. That's it. And the story moves on. Like what? What's the point in giving us all of Jephthah's pointless words? Shades, it's because biblical authors communicate their message in a multitude of ways, and one of those ways is space. Any time the Bible gives extended space to something, you need to ask why. There's, there's a reason. And I, I believe... The reason we get so much space dedicated to what Jephthah has to say right here is because we are meant to see through Jephthah's speech. We're meant to see that he begins this battle with the Ammonites by relying on himself, his own strengths, his own smarts, his own skills in speech. We get no prayer from Jephthah here. We get no word from the Lord, things that were more common in prior judge stories. We just get him relying on his own diplomatic skills, which are good. Like, read through this entire story. Every time Jephthah speaks, like, he's a good speaker. His name uh, actually means, so Jephthah means he has opened. He has opened. Likely a mom would choose such a name for her son to thank whatever God she worshipped. God has opened the womb to give my son life. So get this. Jephthah's very name admits that his life depends upon God. But ironically, he lives that life depending upon himself. And why not? I mean, every time he opens his mouth... He reveals his giftedness in speech and seemingly gets his way. Perhaps that's what Jephthah took his name to mean. He has opened, meaning I open my mouth to achieve what I want in life by my own means. The, the means that I need are that of my own strength, my own smarts, my own skills. Is this not what we've seen repeatedly in Jephthah's life? If you remember from last week, all the way back up in verse 3 of chapter 11, we saw Jephthah is a self-made man who's very able to just gather others around himself, natural-born leader. You read back through verses 4 through 11 of this chapter, and he shows off his powers of speech as he bargains with the elders of Gilead to, to get his way. Promises, yeah, I'll lead your army against the Ammonites as long as you promise to give me leadership of all of you once this is done. Jephthah is very used to living, relying upon himself, and this is the exact same thing we see all throughout verses 15 to 27. Jephthah relying on his own strength as he makes his arguments with the king of the Ammonites. He makes three arguments. I'll summarize them for you real quick. Verses 15 to 20, Jephthah makes a historical argument. A historical argument. He tells the king of the Ammonites, look, you're saying we stole your land? That never happened. 
Israel never stole this land. In fact, the land didn't even belong to you. It belonged to the Amorites. And when we came up from Egypt, we did not attack the Amorites. The Amorites attacked us. Because of that, he makes argument number two, a theological argument. This is in verses 21 to 24. He says, because the Amorites attacked us needlessly, God gave them into our hand. And therefore, God gave us the land. And then he sums it all up in verses 25 through 27 with a chronological argument. Basically, he says, look, this land has been in our possession for 300 years. Why are you just now trying to pick a fight over it? Jephthah's logic is tight. He's, he's made a really good argument, but it's one that betrays where his trust actually lies in his own strength. I can show you that in all three arguments. In, in his historical argument, Jephthah actually mixes up facts and conflates events, likely on purpose in order to make his case stronger. In other words, he's relying on his own persuasive powers of speech to win this argument. In, in his theological argument, you read through that, he doesn't just appeal to Yahweh, he also appeals to pagan gods, saying to the Ammonites, look, you'll agree with this principle. Each god of each people distributes their land, gives their land to them. So you Ammonites need to be satisfied with the land that's been given to you by your gods and us satisfied with the land that's been given to us by ours. In other words, Jephthah's syncretistic. That's where you take whatever religion you have and you combine it with the religions of the cultures that surround you. Jephthah sees Yahweh as, as one amongst many gods. And he relates to Yahweh the same way that all the pagan cultures around him relate to their gods. As a divine being to be manipulated, coerced into giving you what you want. Jephthah relies on his own strength in his chronological argument as well. You have to, you have to dig into and know a little bit of history to, to get this one, but Jephthah actually slings a personal insult at the king of the Ammonites. Basically, he's saying to him, you don't want to do this because you're not strong enough to defeat me anyway. Do you see? Chase, do, you, do you see Jephthah relying on his own strength? He is relying on the number one Canaanite means himself. We can talk through all the different specifics of the means that Canaanite culture would use or that our culture would use. Pick your secular culture anywhere throughout time. We can talk through all the specific means that those cultures employ in order to try and get what they want, but they all boil down to the same root of self-reliance. That's where Jephthah's trust lies. Does ours, like do we, Shades, do I, do I rely upon myself? Is that where my trust and my faith is ultimately put? In, in my own strength, in my own skill, in my, my own smarts. This is what lies at the very heart of sin. Is it not what lies at the heart of our first parent's sin in the Garden of Eden? They turned away from trusting in God. To trust in who? To trust in themselves. In their own wisdom, their own ability to determine right and wrong and be masters of the universe. Shades, do we do the same? 
and please, hear, hear my heart right here. When, when I ask the question, do we do the same? I'm, I'm not talking about do we ever sinfully rely on ourselves. Of course we do. I'm not saying do we ever sinfully rely on ourselves. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the disposition of our hearts, the, the trajectory of our, our lives. Of course we will all rely upon ourselves inst- instead of the Lord throughout our lives. I do this all the time, but shades, I can unequivocally say the disposition of my heart, the desire of my life is to live relying upon the Lord. That's, that's my trajectory, no matter how often I fall short of it. I want to live with Jesus as my king. That is what I'm asking. Is the disposition of your heart to be your own king or to embrace Christ as king? We're going to face this question all throughout the end of the book of Judges. Judges is going to ramp up. Throughout its conclusion, we are going to hear a certain refrain echoed fourfold. It's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To many people, that statement sounds like the greatest thing. No king, no ultimate authority except for me and myself. Absolute autonomy to determine who I am and the trajectory of my life. I submit to no one but myself. Does that sound like the greatest thing to you? Is that that the trajectory of your life, or do you embrace Christ as king? Canaanized people embraced Canaanized means. Fundamentally, that is their own strength. This, This is what we see Jephthah do. And it doesn't work. Verse 28, once again, the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah. But shades, shades this, this moment right here, this is precisely where we see God pour out his grace lavishly. Jephthah in the depths of his sin. This is where we see God pour out his grace lavishly. Look at Judges 11 and verse 29, the very next verse. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. That verse gives us whiplash as we read through this story. What? What? The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on from Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah and empowers him. Like, get this. Where Jephthah's own strength and own skills had failed, God meets him in that moment and lavishly, graciously, undeservedly supplies his power. And Jephthah's empowered. He's able to go throughout the land, gather the army that he needs. God is graciously supplying the strength for victory. Why? Because he's that kind of God. Gracious. God of Grace, if you were here last week, do you remember? This is exactly what we saw in chapter 10 and verse 16. Chapter 10 and verse 16, you can go back and read it. This is right after the entire nation of Israel has rebelled against God. They deserve nothing but judgment. 
What do we see in Judges 10, 16? We see God's compassion well up in his heart over his people's misery and suffering. And now, right here in Judges 11, we're seeing that welled up compassion overflow into their lives. Even through a Canaanite-like leader. The Lord can use even a Jephthah. He graciously pours out his spirit to save his people from their suffering. And shades, I am, I am so, so thankful. Because you know what this means? This means several things. First of all, it means that there is God's grace. God's grace can be extended to me. God's grace can be extended to any leader who missteps. To any Jephthah. And he can work through a broken leader to still bless his people. I'm thankful for this because it means all that. And it means even more than that. You know, I was thinking about this just as I was reading through this passage. God working through Jephthah in this situation, it means, Shades, when you find yourself, I wonder if you've ever been in this place before, you find yourself in a place where God has worked in your life, poured out his spirit in your life through a leader, and then later it comes to light that that leader was living like a Canaanite. And you begin to wonder, was I really even experiencing the Lord? Does everything that happened in my life so powerfully, is all of that invalidated now? What does this say about me and my discernment and, and my Judgment, I think what we see right here through Jephthah and the way that God works to save his people is no, that does not invalidate the work that God did through that kind of leader in your life. He works through Jephthahs all the time because he loves his people. He loves you. And he loves Jephthahs too, which is what makes the next part of this story that much more tragic. In spite of Jephthah living like a Canaanite, God pours out his grace into his life. And yet, Jephthah will still seek to use Canaanite means to guarantee victory. Look at verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. God's spirit had already come upon Jephthah for victory. Why make this vow? Because Jephthah's been canonized shaped by the culture that surrounds him. So he's got a Canaanite view of God, and he chooses to use Canaanite means. This is how Canaanites relate to their gods. This is what their worship looks like, like bargaining. Pagan worship is always transactional. I'll do for you so that I can get from you. It's what, it's what Christopher, uh, philosopher Christopher Watkin calls the N, the letter N, the N-shaped dynamic. So imagine a, a lowercase n, you know, that begins here, goes up, and ends down over here. What, what he's saying by that is, in pagan worship, I'm the starting point. 
Start with me and my self-reliance. Even in how I'm relating to God, I'm relying on myself and the works that I can do in order to make my God move. Start with me and I make some offering, I make some promise to God so that he'll give me what I want. You see the in-shaped dynamic there. It's transactional worship. It's, it's manipulating or using God himself as a means. It's, it's Canaanite thinking. And in Canaanite thinking, the, the more I want to guarantee that I'll receive this thing that I'm asking for, then, then the more I need to, to give in the first place. And it seems right here in the text that Jephthah wants victory over the Ammonites more than anything. And that makes sense. He spent his life as an outcast. And if he wins this battle, not only is he welcomed back in, he's basically welcomed back in as a king. The guarantee he's received from the elders of Gilead is you win this battle and you will be our leader. He wants this victory more than anything. And because of that, he pledges to give the greatest sacrifice he can think of, another human life. First person to come out of my house, after I get victory, I'll offer as a burnt offering. Now, some scholars, you read some commentaries, some scholars, they're going to try and argue that Jephthah did not have in mind right here a human sacrifice. He had in mind maybe an animal wandering out of his House. If you want to walk through all of the arguments as to why that doesn't work, I'm happy to sit down and walk through those with you. But basically, the language, culture, and terminology right here won't allow for that interpretation. It's pretty clear. He's talking about a human sacrifice. And why not? He's thinking like a Canaanite. I mean, the God of the very people he's about to fight, the Ammonites. Their chief god was Molech. Molech is known for being worshipped through human sacrifice, most specifically child sacrifice. And as a Canaanized person, Jephthah uses Canaanite means. And to ensure victory in the present, he's going to end up sacrificing his future. Because after his victory in battle, the first person out of his house to meet him is going to be none other than his child, his only daughter. Look at verse 34. Then Jephthah came home at Mizpah. This is after he's won. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child, Yahid. Remember that. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. Don't know why he's placing the blame on her. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth. Just like his name, he is opened. I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Uh, yeah, he could. Just read Leviticus 5 or Leviticus 27. 
There are absolutely provisions in the law for the nullification of vows that are in contradiction to God's word. But Jephthah doesn't relate to God through the lens of his word. He relates to God through the lens of Canaanite culture. And in Canaanite culture, you dare not break a vow to a God lest you incur a curse. So in great tragedy, Jephthah's daughter, she's allotted two months to go away and to mourn with her friends, to mourn her virginity. In other words, to mourn the fact she'll never marry, she'll never have a family, she'll never live to see old age. And we know that because of verse 30, verse 39, excuse me. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Again, some scholars will try and say that this does not mean he sacrificed his daughter literally, but metaphorically. It, that's why she mourns her virginity. They'll say it means that he dedicated her to tabernacle service. Tabernacle service dedication never actually meant that someone could never marry or have children, so that interpretation makes no sense on its face. There's a lot more reasons than that. You gotta do a lot of interpretive gymnastics to try and pull off that reading. The plain meaning of the text is that he offered her up as a burnt offering, which agrees with the overarching darkness and deepening darkness and theme we've seen in Judges. The theme throughout Judges is God's people becoming more and more like the Canaanite culture that surrounds them until that indeed affects the Judges themselves. I think him sacrificing his daughter is precisely what we see. Part of the reason I think that is because of Psalm 106. I've read you this psalm before during this series. Psalm 106 speaks specifically about different things that happened during the days of the judges. And this is what it says in verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Because Canaanized people use Canaanite means. Sacrificing anything for the sake of victory. To get what I want or what I think I need. Shades, do we do the same? Are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to sacrifice in order to get whatever it is that we think we need or want in life? Uh, last week we talked about the fact that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of Christians within our culture, that are, think what we need more than anything is political victory. Are we willing to sacrifice anything to get it? Even in our own integrity, am I willing to sacrifice my children's trust in me and the integrity of my faith in order to achieve political victory? Am I like Jephthah willing to sacrifice future generations for the sake of present victory. You can apply this to anything. Uh, you, you can apply it to how we think about success in life, uh, our careers, money, financial security. We can say that we're chasing all of those things on behalf of others or on behalf of our family. But how often do we sacrifice our family in order to achieve those very things? That's exactly what Jephthah did right here in this story. To achieve peace for future generations like his daughter, he sacrificed future generations like his daughter. 
You can apply this to anything. Think about the pursuit of godliness in your life. Godliness with regards to my marriage. Godliness with regards to singleness. Godliness with regards to my sexuality. Godliness with regards to my work ethic. Godliness, what, what, whatever, whatever it is, will we sacrifice the pursuit of godliness for the pursuit of whatever this world says will actually satisfy with regard to all of those things? Will we embrace Canaanite means in order to guarantee the victory we think we need? Shades, shades, this This is where we need to see the fourth and final reality. We need to see where Canaanization leads. This is reality number four. Reality number four. See where Canaanization leads, not to victory, but to tragedy. See where Canaanization leads, not to victory, but to tragedy. We've seen that in Jephthah's own life personally. He wanted victory, it led to tragedy. We see this not only in his life personally, we also see this reality play out corporately through all of Israel. Israel used Canaanite means in order to try and guarantee victory over the Ammonites. And they got that victory over the Ammonites, but simultaneously they lost everything. Do you remember how this story ends? It's where we began. Chapter 12 Verses 1 through 7, this story ends with Israel infighting. It ends with civil war. It ends with the Se-Shibboleth incident. In other words, get this, Israel used Canaanite means to fight for peace, and peace is precisely what they lose. Look at chapter 12 and verse 6. It tells us that they killed 42,000 of their own in this civil war. And in verse 7, the story concludes. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Now, if you've been tracking with all of the major judge cycles throughout our study in this book, then you should notice something is missing here. In every other major judge cycle thus far, we've been told something very specific at the conclusion of each judge's story. We've been told, and the land had blank for so many years. Anybody know? Oh, somebody knows. They're just being bashful. Peace or rest. And the land had rest. For the first time in a major judge cycle, there is no rest The very thing they were fighting for is the very thing that they lost. Because here's the reality of where canonization leads, not to victory, but to tragedy. And not just personally, but corporately. Shades, we see this reality in the church. When the church embraces canonization, what does it lead to? Infighting? Civil war of a kind? A bunch of say shibboleth incidents where each of us will choose the shibboleth of what it means to truly belong to Jesus. And if you truly belong to Jesus, you got to be able to embrace this thing. If you truly belong to Jesus, clearly you will embrace the Democratic Party. Or clearly you will embrace the Republican Party. That's the new shibboleth. 
That's the new measure of orthodoxy. Not something that God has given us, but something that the culture has. And it leads to corporate tragedy. The promise of canonization, whether we're talking about choosing Canaanite leaders, using Canaanite means, the promise of the surrounding culture is that what they have to give us will lead to victory. But we see clearly it always corporately, personally leads to tragedy. So shades, don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie of Canaanite culture, Canaanite leaders, or Canaanite means. Don't buy the lie that those things can give victory. In the short term, it might seem that way. It may seem like they win, but in the end, you will lose everything. In the words of Jesus, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit you to embrace means that make it look like you win in the short run only to lose in the long run? Shades, don't buy that lie. The gospel is much better news because it's true. The good news of the gospel, Shades, is that you don't have to use Canaanite means to try and gain anything because you have already been given everything. I know this precisely because Jephthah's story intentionally echoes another. One that happened long before his day to show us we don't have to bargain with God to get anything. He's the God who provides everything. Do you know what story I'm talking about? It's another story of child sacrifice. It's from Genesis 22. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Yahid. Our author and judges intentionally echoes the language of Genesis 22 so that we will compare the two. Abraham, take your son, your only son, and Abraham obeys. Why? That always baffles us. It should make sense to us. Abraham obeys because he's living in a world where that was normal. That's what all the gods were like in the nation surrounding Abraham. They required great sacrifice for great payout. And God does this to show Abraham precisely that he is different than any God he has ever heard about because all those gods are false and he is real. He's not a God who demands to be paid. He is a God who pays the price to give, to give us life. Then as Abraham, as Abraham raises his knife, God stops him and provides a substitute sacrifice. So Genesis twenty two fourteen says, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided in shades it was. On the mount of the Lord, it was provided on Mount Calvary, God's only son, Yahid, his only son, Jesus Christ, provided himself as the perfect substitute sacrifice. For God himself had vowed, covenanted to give his own life for yours and mine. Get this, Jephthah opened his mouth with a vow and it brought death. God opened his mouth with a vow, a covenant, and it brought us life through Christ. And so we live, Shades, we live not like Canaanites with their 
in-shaped dynamic of using my own strengths and my own smarts and my own skills to, to get what I want from the gods. No, we live with what philosopher Christopher Watkin calls a U-shaped dynamic where God, it begins with God, and he has already given us, given us total victory. We just receive and rejoice. We receive and rejoice. Even when it looks like we are losing in this life. We know that in the long run, Jesus has already won. And so we rest. We rest in him instead of rushing to use Canaanite means to try and achieve victory. No, we know that ends in tragedy. We rest in the victory that we've already received. Shades, this is how we say Shibboleth. This is how we show that we belong to the people of God. We are a people who rest in the victory that he has won. We are a people who do not freak out in this world thinking that we have a victory we need to win. The fight is fought. It is finished. Death is defeated. Jesus has won. This is how we know that we belong and how we show that we belong to Jesus. We rest in him. And here's the deal, right here at the end. If you're like Jonathan, that's great, but it's too late for me. It's too, it's too late because as you've been talking, I've been holding up this mirror of Judges 10 through 12 to see if I've been canonized. And as you've been talking, I mean, just honestly, I look way too much like Jephthah. I'm way too much like Israel in Judges 10 to 12. I'm, I'm completely canonized and I know it so I can find no rest. If that's you, dear brother and sister, I would say the goodness of the gospel is precisely for you because Jesus came to save Jephthah's too. I, you know the passage that I read earlier from Psalm 106? Talked about how God's people had embraced the practice of Canaanite child sacrifice. After that, like you keep reading Psalm 106. After that, Psalm 106 and verse 44 says, Nevertheless, God looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I don't care what you got to throw at the gospel. It responds with nevertheless. Even at your absolute worst, even at Israel's absolute worst, they could not get to a place that God's steadfast love could not reach. That was true for Jephthah too. I think. I can't prove it, but I think we see that. Jephthah's only mentioned one time in the New Testament. Does anybody know where? Hebrews 11, which we don't call the Hall of Fame. We call it the Hall of Faith because Christians like to come up with cheesy names for things. He's mentioned there, just barely, just barely, but a passing mention in Hebrews 11 and verse 32. Perhaps 
Perhaps it's just because if we look at his life as a whole, he's a mixed bag and maybe there are sprinkled in there some examples, some moments of faith in his life that can serve as an example. That may be the reason. Or perhaps I can't prove it. Just having a little sanctified imagination moment. Perhaps, perhaps it's because God more fully worked in Jephthah's life than Judges records. Perhaps Jephthah repented. I don't know if that's what happened, but I know it's possible because of the gospel. Because God's son died to cover even Jephthah's sin of child sacrifice. Brother or sister, you are not too far gone. See the bright light of the gospel shine right into your judges-like darkness, beckoning you to come back to Jesus and rest. That is how we say Shibboleth. Let's pray. Father, your gospel is mind-blowingly good. And I think... I praise you that we see that all the more the darker things get. And I pray, I pray this morning that a spotlight has been shined on your son, Jesus Christ, and that our hearts will embrace him anew. I pray for anyone in here who does not know you, that they would see they are not beyond the reach of your gospel. That that news is good for them too. We love you. We thank you that you have sent not a Jephthah, but Jesus. We pray these things in his name and by your spirit.